from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 194 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and we are back. I am joined by my co-host, executive producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, isn't it great to be back in the saddle again? It absolutely is. So uh, hopefully we were able to roll back into this just like old times and uh, we don't miss any beats. Yeah, well, we'll see. Well, you've you've been on shows all summer, so this is this is my return after a a long break of all kinds of stuff going on, surgery and recuperation and prepping for our new season and all that so it is nice to be back yes it is and welcome back thank you welcome back to you and welcome back to our connecting with walt family too who i know have been anxious for a new episode and thank you for everybody who wrote in messages asking about the show and when we return and letting us know how much you appreciate our stories we really appreciate that as well and then how much you missed us. So here we are, ready to go. So, and of course, uh, you know, what's exciting too is in just a few weeks, it is the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, which we have chronicled a lot in earlier episodes. But we are planning a very special episode on the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, and it involves you. Our loyal listeners and family. So, Craig, do you want to tell everyone what we are planning? Yeah, absolutely. So, we are, uh, for the 50th anniversary, we want to do an episode where we share some of our best memories of visiting Walt Disney World and, you know, just just our, our fondest looks back at the parks and uh, you know it's great that we want to do that but at the same time we also want to hear from everyone else out there as well too and hear your stories because you know what it's it's bigger than just our stories we want to hear yours too so uh, while we will have an episode where we share some of our best stories we also want to have one where you're able to join in on the fun as well too so uh, the idea is for anyone out there who's able to record audio clips of themselves, you know, even if it's as simple as a voice memo on your phone. Uh, if you then are able to email us the audio, then we'll be able to string it together and and play play clips of everyone out there sharing their best memories of uh, visits to Walt Disney World. And if you're not technologically advanced enough uh, to to actually record yourself, of course, you can always write us an email and, and one of us can read it on your behalf. Maybe we can get a celebrity to, to narrate it. I don't know if Morgan Freeman 
it's busy, uh, but I feel like that would have a lot of uh, gravitas uh, added to our show, but uh, probably not. It'll probably just be one of us reading reading the stories. But uh, I, And I'm going to try to look into a way to you know maybe find a different way to help people record if it's not something you're as comfortable to do on your own. But we want to get you involved, too, because you know it's a big milestone for for everyone who has visited and loved Walt Disney World throughout the years. So uh, Craig at DisneyInfo.com is where you're ultimately going to send your audio clips. And beyond that, we don't know what the show's going to look like. So uh, <laughs> I can't even give you exact uh, parameters of what to do. Just send your send your message and and we'll we'll see where we can go from there. <laughs> yeah, favorite memories of Walt Disney World. Do we have a a time limit or anything like that, Craig? On them, or just share your memories? Yeah, well, let's just share your memories. You know, obviously, a lot of people are going to want to share. So, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be 30 seconds, but maybe also uh, not go on a Craig Williams level of talking for 10 minutes uninterrupted without breathing. You know, maybe <laughs> somewhere <laughs> sweet spot, a couple, couple minutes of sharing your memories. <laughs> Okay, sounds good. So we're excited that you'll be a part of this uh, 50th anniversary celebration with us. Yeah. So it should be a lot of fun. Agree. Okay. So we'll we'll talk more about this in future episodes as we uh, gear up for the celebration of this huge milestone for yes. Walt Disney World. And also as part of our celebration of Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary, we are going to take a look today at the history of an attraction that was an opening day attraction at the Magic Kingdom and was so popular, it traveled to Disneyland Anaheim and Tokyo Disneyland. So clap your hands and stomp your feet and try to keep right with them. Because one sure thing this episode's got is real old country rhythm as we talk about the history of the Country Bear Jamboree. Now, the Country Bear Jamboree is one of the last attractions Walt Disney worked on, and the attraction's artwork was some of the last he saw before his passing in December 1956. Now, Walt was working on a number of projects at that time, including the experimental prototype community of tomorrow, Epcot, as part of the Florida project, Cal Arts, and the Mineral King Ski Resort. You may be surprised to hear that our bear band bears with the real old country rhythm did not emerge from the southern Appalachian Mountains, but instead from the snowy mountains of the Sequoia National Forest in California. Walt and Lillian enjoyed skiing with their daughters when they were young, so much so that Walt invested in the Sugar Bowl Ski Resort and a slope, Mount Disney, is named in appreciation of his support. Walt also produced the opening and closing ceremonies of the 1960 Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley, California, and his team managed the operations of that event. When an opportunity to develop a ski resort in the Mineral King area, which would later become part of Sequoia National Forest, presented itself, Walt was enthusiastic. He had fallen in love with the rugged terrain of the Swiss Alps and the town of Zermach, Switzerland in the 1950s during the filming of Third Man on the Mountain, which you can watch on Disney+, Plus, one of our favorite films. 
Um, Walt had many ideas from his experiences in the Alps and his research into urban planning for Epcot, and he wanted to incorporate these into an environmentally responsible ski resort community. And we have episodes devoted to both Mineral King and the 1960 Winter Olympics in our archives that you may want to check out to learn more about these projects. Now, Walt wanted Mineral King to offer year-round activities, and activities for both skiers and non-skiers, and activities in the evenings after skiers returned from a day on the slopes. So Walt and his Imagineers began to develop various entertainment and dining options for guests to round out their experiences. Now, maintaining the theme of the resort and its environment was important to Walt. So he had an idea for an entertainment offering that would include lots and lots of bears. So Walt challenged his Imagineers to create a musical stage show which was a significant test for the audio-animatronics technology. After working on the ride through Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion attractions, Mark Davis wanted to create the next-generation Tiki Room-style audio-animatronics show. Walt tasked Mark to develop a show that included bears for Mineral King. Mark Davis had started his career as a Disney animator and artist, and Walt brought Mark over to Imagineering because of his skill at adding humor in his work. Mark spent months working with Albertino, who had worked on the Humphrey the Bear cartoon shorts, and would be the inspiration for Big Al in the final show. And they developed concept art for the show, which included anthropomorphic bears riding bicycles, wearing a variety of clothing, both formal formal and casual, singing and playing instruments. There were marching band bears, Dixieland band bears, circus band bears, mariachi band bears, and country western band bears. Craig, imagine how different that show would be if they went with mariachi band bears. Yeah, I'm kind of glad that it ended up the way it did. Nothing against it. I just, I, I'm struggling to understand that concept as much. I, it, it shouldn't be that hard to figure out, but it's just, it's not clicking with me. I'm thinking Saludos Amigos meet country bears. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I feel like with, part of with bears, I feel like I need them to feel like they could be in that environment. And, you know, maybe it's, uh, forgive my ignorance, but I I just haven't heard a lot of stories about bears uh, being south of the border. And <laughs> so, I, I could be wrong, though. Yeah, you never know. Um, now, Walt knew Mark had the right idea. And he told Mark he loved the characters and encouraged him to continue developing the idea of a dinner show with animatronic bears singing and playing instruments. As Walt was leaving Mark's office, he uncharacteristically said goodbye. This was the last time Mark saw Walt. Walt passed a few days later on December 15, 1966. As plans progressed on Mineral King... Mark and Al continued to work on the bear-themed restaurant show. In an early piece of concept art, the names for the bears were Little Lemonade Bear, Big Fred, Old Zeke, Cousin Ted, and Brother Zeb. Some of the names would change, but the final look and country-western theme of the bears were there. 
composer George Bruns and Imagineer Xavier Exitencio, who wrote the lyrics for Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life and Grim Grinning Ghosts, were brought on to write new music and adapt existing music for the show. Over the next couple of years, two projects Walt had been working on were abandoned. Epcot, because the company focused on building the Magic Kingdom, and Mineral King, due to legal, legislative, and environmental obstacles. As plans for Mineral King stalled, and the opening date for Walt Disney World neared, Imagineers made a decision to design the Bear Dinner Show for the Magic Kingdom rather than Mineral King. To better fit in with the region, the Bears were given more of a southern twang and play country-western music. The audio-animatronic bear figures were developed at the same time as the soundtrack, and the song selections inspired the design of the bears. Henry and Wendell were based on comedy-western performers Homer and Jethro, who played guitar and mandolin. Homer and Jethro wrote Fractured Folk Song and Mama Don't Whoop Little Buford, which Henry and Wendell sing. Mark used Harper Goff, who played the banjo for the Firehouse 5 Plus 2, as inspiration for Wendell. Henry, the Master of Ceremonies, is voiced by Pete Renaday, who has been the voice of the announcer at Disneyland's Main Street Railroad Station, First Officer Collins on the Mission to Mars attraction, and Captain Nemo in the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction at the Magic Kingdom. Wendell is voiced by Bill Cole, who was was a member of the Mellow Men singing group that included Thurl Ravenscroft, maybe maybe best known to Disney fans as the singing busts in the Haunted Mansion. The show features 18 audio-animatronic bears on five stages, along with an audio-animatronic buffalo, a deer buck, and a moose head on the wall to the right of the stage. The vaudeville-style show is performed in Grizzly Hall, which is supposed to be a union hall somewhere in the West in the late 1920s or early 1930s, even though the Grizzly Hall sign indicates it was established in 1898. Another sign commemorates the founder of the union hall, Ursus H. Bear, who passed in 1928. So we know this show is set sometime after 1928. Because Grizzly Hall is located in Frontierland, we may assume it takes place somewhere west of the Mississippi. Grizzly Hall refers to grizzly bears that are mainly in the Pacific Northwest. Buff is a bison from the American West. However, Henry does introduce a few bears from Florida. Yeah, that's that's where it gets a little difficult because there is so much of the, the show that has that florida feeling to it besides even the bears uh you know it's especially once you get up into the panhandle of florida you 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 start to get that more uh that more southern feel to it uh to to the state versus central florida (laughs) Um, but it's yeah it's just kind of like an amalgamation of all those different places kind of like uh what i imagine springfield usa to be in the simpsons like yeah it could could be the it could be the pacific northwest it could be it could be the south it could be florida it can be any of those places but it's definitely the frontier regardless and in terms of minutia that that imagineering comes up with if being able to set 
a time period for when the show takes place based on when Grizzly Hall was founded. Like, if that's not minutia, then I don't know what is. And I love it, but, I mean, that's that's the thought. That's the thought of the Imagineers. So uh, I think we have to always take a take a moment to appreciate that. I agree. And, you know, those are the little details that make the Disney attraction so fascinating. Because, uh, you know, everywhere you look, there's some tiny little thing that tells the story of the mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and Grizzly Hall is constructed from logs, and its high peak and balcony are typical of the Pacific Northwest. Kerosene lanterns hang on the columns supporting the balcony. To the right of the entrance door is a pendulum clock listing the number of minutes till the next show, and which is accurate to the time period and theme, rather than the digital clocks used on other attractions. And look closely at the pendulum, and you can see CB. J engraved on it. Above the marquee, you can see a couple of bearskin rugs hanging on the wall, which is a bit gruesome when you consider the performers are bears. So I don't know what the story is behind that. (laughs) (laughs) In the waiting area or lobby, there are gas lamps and chandeliers. Heavy wooden beams and columns support the ceiling. There are cartoon-like oval portraits of the bear performers. And be sure to check out the floor of the lobby. You can see scratches from the claws of bears who have visited Grizzly Hall to see the show. So that's another little touch that guests may miss. Yeah, a lot do. I've, I've stood in the, the lobby and I've, I've watched people come to the realization <laughs> like hey look at look at look down at that look at look at the claw marks so you know and that's i'm talking i've i've seen that i think the last time was just earlier this summer so uh it's it's a detail that still so many people notice for the first time yeah it's funny that's what's great you can keep going back on attractions and you'll notice something new every time which yep. is what walt wanted with the yep. attractions So when the next show is about to begin, the doors open and guests walk through a hallway and into the theater where they see a red velvet curtain and rows of wooden benches. There are five stages with two stages stages on each side of the main center stage, and each one is draped with a red velvet curtain. Each of the four stages have turntables, which enables multiple bears to perform individually throughout the show. Now, each stage is capped with ornamental woodwork with gold inlays and scrolling sculptures with images of trout and cherubic bears. I think that's another detail folks might miss Mm -hmm. when they come into the theater as well. I remember seeing that at Disneyland when I was a boy and um, thought, how? (laughs) I thought that that was so clever. I don't know why. Um, the center stage has a plaque with a portrait of Grizzly Hall's founder, Ursus H. Bear, with the dates 1848 to 1928. And the center stage is lit at stage level with gas lanterns typical of the 1800s. A scrim hangs over the stage to hide the performers, and on it are several advertisements, which includes Unicycles for Trick Bears from the Bruin Cycle Company. And this is a reference to the Disney short Bongo. And there's another ad for The Dump, featuring continental cuisine with booths available for bears. 
Surrounding these ads is an image of a male and female bear sitting in a canoe under a romantic moonlit sky. And this type of curtain advertising um, local merchants was common during the age of vaudeville and also included scenes of natural or cultural regions or settings in the region. Now, since the painting on the curtain shows bare snow-capped mountains, we may assume the setting is the western Rocky Mountains rather than the eastern Appalachian Mountains, which are tree-covered. Now, the lights dim and a spotlight illuminates the three heads on the wall, a bison, buck, and moose indicating the show is about to begin, and they come to life, and a buffalo named Buff is voiced by Thurl Ravenscroft, who is recognizable in other Disney attractions, including The Haunted Mansion, The Mark Twain Riverboat, Pirates of the Caribbean, Disneyland Railroad, and Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room. He tells the bears to hurry up and start the show. Melvin the Moose, who's voiced by Bill Lee, who was Roger's singing voice in 101 Dalmatians and the father in Cinderella, and Max the Deer, also voiced by Pete Renaday, tell him to be patient, and they tell jokes to calm him down. The 15-minute show is made up of existing songs and two original songs, The Bear Band Serenade and Come Again, written by George Bruns and Exitensio. The rest of the songs were popular from the 1940s through the 1960s and include bluegrass, folk, blues, ballad, western, and rockabilly music. Of the 13 songs of the show, only three are sung by female performers, which reflects the country music scene of the time when the show was first developed, which is dominated by male performers. The first female performer is Trixie, who is not averse to enjoying a glass of wine. She was originally voiced by Wanda Jackson, with the role being taken over by Cheryl Poole. Then there is Teddy Barra, who is very fancy in her hat, feather boa, and parasol. And she swings on a flower-entwined swing, hanging from the ceiling as she tries to lure Henry with the famous Mae West line, Y'all come up and see me sometime, you hear? Teddy Barra was originally voiced by country singer Gene Shepard and is now voiced by Patty Stoneman of the bluegrass musical group The Stoneman Family. The third female act is the Sunbonnet Trio of Bunny, voiced by Jackie Ward, Bubbles, voiced by Luell G. Norman, best known by Star Trek fans, as the soprano voice of the original show's theme song. I bet it's all playing in your head right now. And for Disney fans, she's the opera-singing ghost in the Haunted Mansion. And Beulah, voiced by Peggy Clark, who all sing about heartbreak against a backdrop of projected slides, illustrating the song with lyrics so the audience can sing along. This was not uncommon for vaudeville acts and was a forerunner of silent films. I love how my two favorite franchises, Star Trek and Disney, come together. You know, in, in this show. So. Anyway, towards the end of the performance after Big Al leaves the stage, Henry appears wearing a coonskin cap atop his top hat. We quickly realize this is not a coonskin cap, but rather a real raccoon named Sammy, which sings a slightly revised The Ballad of Davy Crockett with Henry. 
And when the show was first being developed, this song was still quite popular. Many of the children who grew up with the Davy Crockett series on television and films in the 1950s and 60s were now young parents bringing their children to Disneyland and soon to Walt Disney World. Regrettably, Henry and Sammy are interrupted by the drunken Big Al, voiced by the legendary actor and singer Tex Ritter, and father of actor John Ritter, who reprises his song, Blood on the Saddle. To silence Big Al, Henry calls on some of the cast to come on stage and sing All Slewfoot, an existing song about bears by rockabilly singer Johnny Horton. The theater lights darken, a loud crash is heard from Big Al's stage, and the drawn curtains flutter. Now, guests assume that drunken Big Al has fallen off his stool and crashed to the floor in a heap. However, the official backstory of the attraction, released in 1971, states that whilst the cast on stage was distracting the audience with their singing, the cast members not on stage rushed Big Al in an attempt to silence him from singing. And I was a boy, I had a, a Big Al um, piggy bank. <laughs> He's my favorite. He's my favorite, too. I've gone on record of that many times. He is yeah. the absolute best. Yep, I agree. I agree. Henry and Sammy let the audience know the show is over and sing Come Again to prompt guests to exit the theater. Max, Buff, and Melvin say goodbye to the audience with a few sarcastic comments. Now, across the pathway from Grizzly Hall is Big Al's cabin. Due to the success of the show, and to take advantage of the passing tourists, Big Al converted his home into a souvenir stand. Melvin, Buff, and Max also hung around in the mile-long bar, which had a side exit that the show fed into. This trio would sing songs and encourage guests to stop and eat in the restaurant. When the mile-long bar became part of Pecos Bill's Tall Tale Inn and Cafe, this trio was removed. I think that's too bad. I think they still would have fit into the theme. Yeah, Bill. I, I, I agree with that. Now, the Country Bear Jamboree opened to great accolades in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom in 1971. A soundtrack album of the attraction was released on opening day. You know, I think I have it somewhere mm-hmm. in my collection. So if not, I think that the D- Disney Records Emporium, whatever it's called, they should release a, re-release it. Yeah, maybe maybe we have that to look forward to with uh, yeah. the upcoming anniversary. Yeah, because you know they have it because it was on Disneyland's 50th um, anniversary, you know, that wonderful album set that they created. Uh, so you know not they only, have it. Well, I think it was also available for at least a time on like Apple Music and some of the streaming services. I don't think it's on there anymore, but I remember a time when when it was. Yeah, it'd be nice if they released it since they released the Tiki Room, you know, and, and a couple of others. It would be nice. Yeah, actually I now, just I just checked on Apple Music and it's there in a partial manner. So they have the original soundtrack from nineteen seventy one and it has the Disney World version of Country Bear Jamboree. Then uh, it's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight extra songs as well, too, on oh, there. So, 
I'm going to listen to that. Well, that's the problem, is that the the Country Bear Jamboree full show version is uh, it's grayed out. So you can only listen to the B-side. Mm. But I think the A-side would just be the original soundtrack. So, you know, you can make it make it work on your own. <laughs> hmm. Let's see. Yeah, I can play the Disneyland album and then go to Apple Music for side B. <laughs> Perfect. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, the lines for the Bear Jamboree, as it was referred to, although we always called it Country Bears. So I never called it Bear Jamboree. Well, the lines are so long that the decision was quickly made to set up a theater for the Bears to entertain guests at Disneyland. The only question was, where in Disneyland should the Bears perform? The answer was in the first large addition to Disneyland since New Orleans Square, Pirates of the Caribbean, and the Haunted Mansion in the late 1960s. Bear Country, Disneyland's seventh theme land, opened on March 24, 1972. No new attraction had opened at Disneyland in three years, the longest the park had ever gone without a new attraction at that time. Um, The Country Bear Jamboree was an e-ticket attraction and the centerpiece of this new four-acre land. The land was themed to remind visitors of the Great Northwest and was planted with more than 265 trees, including coastal redwoods, locust, white birch, evergreen elm, and various species of pine, and with trees moved from other areas of the property. The Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad was rerouted to accommodate the new land. Bear Country occupied the site of the Frontierland Indian Village. Since the early days of the park, real Native Americans shared their songs, crafts, and culture with guests. In the late 1960s, though, a series of labor disputes had begun between the Disneyland uh, executives and the tribes, with the tribes threatening a labor strike. In 1971, as a result of this labor unrest and the American public's waning interest in the cowboy and Indian genre, it led Disneyland management to make the decision to locate the new bear country in this location. I loved Frontierland Indian Village. It was just so interesting and fascinating, and it really was. It was our first introduction to real Native Americans since oh. everything we knew was on, you know, through Hollywood. Yeah, which and on television. was obviously <laughs> not <very> real. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yes, not real whatsoever. And, you know, my generation was we played cowboys and Indians, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and all that. So we, you know, embraced knowledge of all of that. So anyway, so it was really interesting. And the fact that it was real, you yeah. know, and it was terrific and... um Unique for Disneyland because even Knott's Berry Farm, which they only had the Western theme at that time, didn't have this kind of, um, you know, demonstrations and things like that. Gotcha. Now, the excitement of a new land was mixed with disappointment. The new land's main attraction, the Country Bear Chamboree, was its only attraction. Due to its popularity at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, Two identical 307-seat theaters were built for Disneyland's version with a capacity of 2,000 guests per hour. The rest of the $8 million expansion included the new Ursula H. Bears Wilderness Outpost, which was a souvenir shop, 
The Indian trading post was just unchanged from its time in Indian Village, and without moving an inch, Davy Crockett's explorer canoes traveled from Frontierland to Bear Country and a snack stand. The gateway to Bear Country was a large simulated granite wall. As guests passed by, they could hear the snores of Rufus, a hibernating bear. Physically, the land was very different from the old Indian village. The winding paths and tunnels that had marked the entrance to the Indian village were replaced by a wide, straight swath of road with a row of western-style buildings encircling a dead-end street. Unlike the other realms of Disneyland, where guests were clearly walking into the jungles of the Congo, the frontier of the Old West, or a land of fantasy and magic, there was no clear backstory for this land. Why had bears taken over what appeared to be a pristine western town abandoned by its human owners? There was no consistency with this land as there were with the others that had been designed under the guidance of Walt. All of these issues would prove to be a perpetual problem for this land. By the end of the decade, the number of guests visiting Bear Country would dwindle. I also think we can't discount its location. You know, it's at a True. dead end. Yeah. Um, at Disneyland. Now it's not because of the path they built that leads to Galaxy's Edge that goes past yeah. there. But at the time, it was a dead end. But really, it still is a dead end because once you go down that direction you dead end into mm-hmm. into the Winnie the Pooh gift shop and the exit yeah. of Splash Mountain so it, it's still you know it, it's a little better than it was before but still not great yeah although one time Fantasyland was that way when I was a boy it dead ended because <laughs> you didn't have the Big Thunder Trail and so um, so it was the same way gotcha yeah so um, Now, the Disneyland version of the Country Bear Jamboree featured what was called a cartridge option. This enabled the show to be changed by replacing the master control and audio tape with a different program. Costume and prop changes allowed for different versions of the show to occur throughout the year. Each change required the show to be shut down for a few weeks whilst the tapes, costumes, and props were changed. The other versions were the Country Bear Christmas Special, which debuted in 1984 and ran during the holiday season from November to January, and the Country Bear Vacation Hoedown, which debuted in 1986, with Sammy the Raccoon being replaced by Randy the Skunk. The Country Bear Christmas Special ran at the Magic Kingdom from 1984 to 2006 and at Disneyland from 1984 to 2001. Although the Vacation Hoedown was well-received, it was not as popular as the original show at the Magic Kingdom. So on February 1st, 1992, Vacation Hoedown was retired after just five years and the original Country Bear Jamboree returned. At Disneyland, Vacation Hoedown played until the attraction was closed. So, did you see any of these other um, show versions, Craig? I did not, unfortunately. Uh, I think it just came down to timing. I just never lined 
up that I was actually able to see any of them. Uh, you know, I I have watched videos of of them, so I've seen them in that way, and I've you know I oh, I wish I could get to to Tokyo and see like the Christmas version of the the show. And uh, yeah, I just I, I if I saw one, I I know I definitely didn't see the Christmas version going up because I was an adult the first time I went to to any Disney park around Christmas, but may, maybe vacation at some point in time but um i yeah i i don't i don't remember so it would have been it would have been very very early so i i would have been probably too young but i also knew you know the great outdoors from uh the disneyland fun uh sing-along song cassette so i feel like that was that was ingrained like i i I associated that more with Country Bear Jamboree than any of the original show for the longest time because I just watched that VHS growing up so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we watched it a lot at our house when our children were little, and then when my granddaughter was little because they released a DVD of it. Oh, Same, they, they never updated it; they just slapped nope. the Disneyland 50th anniversary logo on it. It was the same exact one. Michael, I have it within arm reach of me right now. <laughs> So, so we have both the VHS and the yeah. DVD. So. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I, I was fortunate enough to see all three several times. I got tired of Vacation Hoedown because, as I mentioned, it ran for years at Disneyland because they never changed it out to the original show. And it just ran until they closed it. Yeah, and that's where it. I uh, unfortunately, like I had my first trip to Disneyland in 1999, so I would have been able to see that version of the show. But I think we, from what I remember, on our one day there, that we were very busy running around. I think we had the mindset of, oh, well, that's at Walt Disney World, so we don't we don't need to to do that. Which that that is a bummer because I I don't know if I don't know if we would have saw vacation hoedown when when i was a kid but again it would have been so so early that when i was so young that and my parents don't pay attention to that stuff as much as as i do now so although the vacation hoedowns all received it was not as popular as the original show at the magic kingdom so on february 1st 1992 vacation hoedown was retired you know, like we said, after just five years, the original Country Bear Jamboree returned at Disneyland Vacation Hoedown played until the attraction was closed, as we said. On August 21st, 2012, the Walt Disney World version of the Country Bear Jamboree closed for nearly a nearly two-month-long refurbishment. A very controversial refurbishment. All the characters in the show received new skin, fur, and costumes. The songs Pretty Little Devilish Mary and Fractured Folk Song and much of the dialogue were removed, whilst other songs were shortened. The show is now four to five minutes shorter than it was before, and the shorter version of the show debuted on October 17th, 2012. So, Craig, what did you think of this refurbishment, and which is now the current version of the show? I... I, this is where I grapple with it. It it is a tight show, how it is. Uh, the perfectionist in me wants 
wants the original show but at the same time too there is enough in this show that uh, you know is definitely uh there there's parts that are on the risque side that i feel like disney at any point in time could say nope okay we're packing this up and we're we're sending it out for good uh never to come back so if i have the choice between the uh more stripped down version right now or or the hopes of getting the original one to then have disney just pull it all away forever i'm okay with a a more a, a tighter version of the show yeah I was disappointed. I, I, I think it, they took out a lot of the humor with it by cutting the dialogue. And I, I just think, I don't know. So I, I miss that. And some of just some of the cleverness and all that. But it's better than them just shutting it down like they did at Disneyland. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, you're only cutting minutes, but that's once you get to the point where it's at five minutes so you're getting to the point where you have one extra show in in a full hour's worth of time too so that's that's ultimately better for guest satisfaction if you don't have to wait as long for the next show as well too because you know i i i'm a i'm a fan of the hall of presidents of of the american adventure but you know, like specifically with the American Adventure, that is such a long show that it's like if you if you miss it and you have to wait for the next one, it's like okay, well, do I walk the entire way around World Showcase? Do I what what do you do while you're waiting fifty minutes for the next showtime of that? So I I appreciate that they're able to get more shows in because of the shorter time. You go see that that guy with the whistle over in the France Pavilion. <laughs> Uh, France. I know how much not, you like him. No, that's Sergio in Italy, oh, and he, he has not he, been oh, around for a Italy while. Okay. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> been out of my life for a long time. I understand he might be back in my life at some point in time here uh, soon, I've but heard that. I uh, I can find ways around that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it, oh, it's the people with the chairs. Yes, in France, right? Okay, which they bother me too, but I'm not. I don't <laughs> want to come off sounding like a curmudgeon, so I'm just. I'll. I'll let it go with Sergio and his whistle. Okay. <laughs> well, due to the bear's popularity, Country Bear Jamboree was an opening day attraction at Tokyo Disneyland on April fifteenth, nineteen eighty three. Like Disneyland, this attraction has two theaters. However, it is extremely popular and plays to large audiences throughout the day. The spoken dialogue is in Japanese, but several of the songs are sung in English. So you would enjoy it, Craig, because I know you like hearing the um, native language and then the country and the host, I should say the host country, and then with the English sort of sporadically in there. Another difference in the Tokyo version is that the curtains behind the bears are black rather than red. It is the only one that still offers all three versions of the attraction, the original, Christmas special, and Vacation Hoedown. So reason to travel multiple times to Tokyo Disneyland. Now, the Bears performed their last jamboree at Disneyland in 2001. The attraction was replaced by another famous bear, Winnie the Pooh, when the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh attraction took over Grizzly Hall. So the next time you ride the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh at Disneyland, look for the homage to the Country Bear Chamboree. As you enter the Honey Heaven Room, turn around, and you have to—you can't be in the very back seat of the little honeycomb um, 
ride vehicle because you won't be able to see it. You have to be in the front seat. And so turn around and look up above the entry and you'll see the heads of Max the Deer, Melvin the Moose, and Buff the Bison. And additionally, additionally, the narrator of the attraction is none other than Pete Renaday, who voiced Henry. So have you seen the homage there in the Winnie the Pooh attraction, Craig? I have, yeah. It, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it did take me a couple times to see it because, as you said, you can't be in that back seat because it it comes up higher. Um, it's just it's impossible. But you know, once once you see it, at least you know. Okay, I know how to spot it every single time. And you know, it's like a it's like a little warm hug in the middle of Winnie yeah. the Pooh. <laughs> and it makes you a little sad that the attraction is gone. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's the whole point of Disney parks is to be sad. So it works, <laughs> right? <laughs> I suppose. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> According to Disney historian and author Jim Carcass, in an article for All Ears, the Imagineers created official biographies of the characters when the attraction is being developed for the Magic Kingdom. When the country bears opened at Disneyland, the biographies were no longer publicized because those bears were supposed to be from the Northwoods to fit in with the theme of bear country. Nevertheless, I thought it would be fun to share those biographies by Jim Corcus. And as an aside, I will add in some of the characters, voice actors I haven't already mentioned. So first we have Henry. Henry's the master of ceremonies at the Country Bear Jamboree, stands six feet tall in his stocking paws. He is another famous football player who entered show business. Henry was formerly with the Goose Creek Bruins. One day they tried a hidden ball play, and Henry hid the ball so well he couldn't find it. This hastened his transfer to music. For a while, he had trouble finding a melody, too. (laughs) Then there's Gomer. Gomer is the piano player, but he didn't always play country and western music. His training was classical. He began pawing the ivories whilst a cub and practiced days and nights for many years. Finally, he went to New York, much to the relief of his neighbors. There he studied Bear Leos, and his favorite composition was Night on Bear Mountain. When he heard himself referred to as the Lard of Juilliard, he quit the concert stage and went home to the hills. He is highly regarded by the other musicians because he can play in a key other than C. There's the Five Bear Rugs. The Five Bear Rugs began playing music together when they were in first grade. Fifteen years later, they were still playing in fourth grade. Zeke plays the banjo and wears glasses. He's the only one who can read music. Fred plays the mouth harp and carries the tune. His wife says Fred is lazy and the tune is the only thing he carries. Ted blows the white lightning jug and Tennessee, voiced by a member of the Stoneman family, plays the one string thing. He hopes one day to add more strings. Zeb plays fiddle and is voiced by another member of the Stoneman family. And Zeb's son, Oscar, accompanies his father on concert tours because Zeb's wife works. She models fur coats, always the same one, at a nearby boutique. Zeke was originally voiced by Dallas McKinnon, who can be heard on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad and as Benjamin Franklin in The American Adventure. Randy Sparks, co-founder of the New Christie Minstrels, later took over the role. Then we have Wendell. Wendell is a frustrated basketball player. He quit the team when in a team photograph he discovered he came up to the other players' knees. He then turned to baseball, but three people stepped on him. They thought he was second base. 
He went from baseball to football until two quarterbacks threw him for touchdowns. It was after his gridiron career that he latched on to Henry. I, uh, that story is just too unbelievable for even me. <laughs> That's, there's no way he's getting this many chances in sports. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe he was good at it. Maybe they, you know, when they, when they, when they, um, when they threw him for touchdowns, you know, if they scored. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Go on. <laughs> we, we have Liverlips McGrawl. He's a home buddy who is never home. He is voiced by Van Stoneman of the Stoneman family. His career spanned the entertainment world, and he's equally famous in radio, TV, nightclubs, and the circus. His throaty growl has captivated audiences everywhere, and he played return engagements in such famous towns as Paris, Kentucky, Rome, Tennessee, Berlin, Wisconsin, Athens, Georgia, Cairo, Illinois, and Stuttgart, Arkansas. But his heart is always at home, where the Miami Serenader can guzzle home cooking and catch up on his whitlin. He has whittled a rain barrel, a bathtub, a pig trough, and a sump pump. We have Trixie. Now, she's an old trooper, a veteran performer. There is nary a sourdough or grub staker who doesn't recall her singing and dancing in the rip-roaring music halls of the Western Frontier. She has been known variously as the Calgary Charmer, Alaska Allurer, Vancouver Vamp, Bewitcher British Columbia, and Tacoma Temptress. As did so many folks with good sense, she visited Florida and decided to stay. She's now known as the Tampa Temptation. She spends her spare hours thumbing through the pages of her scrapbook and is planning to write a book I barely remember. We have Terrence. Terrence is better known as the Vibrating Wreck from Nashville Tech. He's voiced by Van Stoneman of the Stoneman family. His stay at Nashville was short. The roar of the grease paint called to him, and he became an actor. He performed often with the Barrymores, and he was known throughout the Ozarks as far north as Joplin for his tenth show rendition of Cyrano de Bergerac. He was one of the few actors who could play the role without a false nose. A fall from the balcony in Romeo and Juliet literally brought down the house. It ended his acting career and the stage, and he turned in his tights for a guitar. We have the Sunbonnets. Mention them, Bunny, Bubbles, and Beulah. They are the babies of the Country Bear Jamboree. They began singing in public school 821 in Clint, Texas, in Ms. Grizzly's class. From there, they appeared five weeks running on Major Bear's Amateur Hour and were booked into Walt Disney World. Backstage, they study their lessons. All the cast helps them with their homework, but they get good grades anyway. In their spare time, they are all knitting a scarf for Big Albert, which they hope to have finished for Christmas three years from now. They're they're the babies? (laughs) They are. They're they're the youngest. And they're the ones that are singing about all the guys that turn them on, turn them down. I know. Um, Isn't that a little uh, unnerving? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm hoping i come out of this still loving the country bear jamboree i think i will but it's it's getting tough <laughs> well maybe maybe they had a wild high school career <laughs> yeah true um ernest the dude is a modern beau brummel 
the well-dressed bear about town. He was originally voiced by Van Stoneman and later re-recorded by Randy Sparks. And he carries his wardrobe with him wherever he goes, which is difficult. Not many motorists will pick up a bear hitchhiker with 17 trunks of clothes. He has 30 coats and 40 slacks, some of which fit. 60 shirts, 47 shoes, 20 hats, and a pair and a half of underwear. Each year, when the 10 best dressed are announced, Ernest the Dude is there, wondering why he isn't on a list. We have Teddy Barra, and she was discovered sitting on a soda fountain stool in an ice cream parlor three miles from Gentry, Arkansas. From there, her rise in showbiz was meteoric, and the ravishing beauty is known as the jewel of the Dakotas. Though she has always wanted to perform serious drama, her fans have never let her forget her feather boa and her parasol, both of which have been promised to the daughters of Benton County Western Museum when they wear out. Then we have Big Albert. And he says, I was born in a cave near the Princess Theater in Pocatello, Idaho. There was music in his blood, and he's been playing his guitar since he was a child. It's become more difficult. Big Al is growing, and the guitar hasn't. He loves to sit in front of his cave and sing. He was the first to practice ecology. He didn't litter his cave with tin cans and paper cartons. He ate them. He was resident bard and balladeer in the swamp before Walt Disney World was built, and three badgers and an alligator have expressed great joy that he is now singing for people. This is Big Albert's tenth farewell appearance. So I think I would have had great fun if I were an Imagineer writing stories for this. Oh, yeah, especially because they're completely inconsequential. <laughs> you know, it's literally I just know. coming up with whatever you think is funny, and that's all that matters. I know, and but these wonderful details that normally we would know nothing about, and it's true for every attraction, that they have all these details in there that usually guests never hear about. Yeah. I will, I, and I'll even agree with that to an extent because, you know, in a lot of attractions, especially intellectual property ones, you know, it's based on what you know from the movies, not necessarily what was built in. But with something like the Country Bear Jamboree, I have a feeling that's why we still love the characters to this day, not because the the songs that they choose to sing. It's because uh, they were given personalities that are able to shine through the songs, even mm-hmm. even though it's, you know, it is, some of the songs are funny, too, of course, and, well, and are perfect, but it's it's the base of who they are that that ends up being what we see on stage. And, you know, it's ridiculous to even be talking about animatronic bears in this way, but that's take that as a, as a shining example of how Disney's able to do what they do. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I missed the dialogue is because the dialogue had so much of their personalities yep. in there, and and now a lot of that is gone. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. now, speaking of movies, Craig, we would be remiss if we did not oh, mention the bear's appearance on the big. We could just screen. stop there. We'll, we'll stop here. We'll stop here. <laughs> in that classic 2002 country bear, the country bears. Now, this is the second theatrical film based on a Disney attraction after 2000's Mission to Mars. We, and accord- we, yeah, we can just talk about that one. Um, I like Mission <laughs> to Mars. <laughs> I, have, I, I was going to watch Country Bears before we did this episode, and I just never got around to it, because I know it's on Disney+. Plus. So, 
according to the Disney Wiki, I had to look it up to see what is this about. You know, Barry Barrington is a young bear raised by a human family in a world where humans and talking bears coexist, and he attempts to trace his roots. And he meets up with the country bears, a long-since broken-up band. Maybe it's the Disneyland version. And they're a parody of bears like the Eagles, it says. So Barry helps the country bears reunite for one final concert while searching for who he truly is. And this has a lot of big names like Haley Joel Osment, Diedrich Bader, Christopher Walken, and Brad Garrett. So, Craig, how could this not be a hit? Well, see, you mentioned you mentioned a lot of names that are big names, but uh, I think Hollywood has proven over and over again that even really good actors can do really terrible things. And um, <laughs> and the Country Bears is a shining example of it. There is nothing about it that works. Anyone who stepped foot on this set on day one and said, yeah, I think we have something good here, they do not deserve to be making movies ever again. The bears are creepy. The dialogue is is so, so just absurd and cringy. There is just, there is nothing redeeming about it. Even as like a goofy Disney comedy, um, like look at some of the wackier ones from the 60s and 70s like my horse is my uncle and i know that's not one but i mean that's kind of what disney was stooping to at that time Mm -hmm. um those look like freaking masterpieces compared the country bears it's just there is there is not an audience for it and i have never met anyone who has said they enjoyed the country bears and i don't foresee myself ever meeting anyone saying that they enjoy it it's it's a bad, bad movie, and I mean, God bless it for being on Disney Plus. But I don't even think they have Mission to Mars on Disney Plus, and that, besides the wacky ending, was actually a pretty okay movie. So, you know, that's that's poetic justice for you. Yeah. Well, who knows? Maybe it'll be there soon. Mission to Mars. <laughs> I mean, wait, we only had to wait how many years for Third Man on the Mountain? So, uh, I know. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, you know, so, so Craig, overall, is Country Bears one of your must-do attractions when you go to the Magic Kingdom and you're just hanging out, or is it just one that you hit occasionally? It is It is returned to an every time. Uh, you know, it's placing this in the entire context of where the world was been, uh, when they were really minimizing how many people could be in the theater uh you know it was very normal for country bear jamboree to wait two full shows to be able to get into it and mm-hmm. i love country bear jamboree but you know waiting over 30 minutes for the one show to go and the next show to go and then you finally get in that's that's a lot so uh for a while there it was not something i was doing uh regularly but as as more people were invited back into the theaters i started attending it more but uh you know in pre-pandemic i would have days where uh and i would do this too with uh the enchanted tiki room and I've even done it with Hall of Presidents, too, where, you know, the shows are set up that you walk out and 
it's not popular enough that there's a line waiting so you could literally walk out and literally walk right back in and sit down and watch it over again so there's been days where i've watched country bear jamboree like 10 times in a row just over and over and over and because you you walk out and you circle around and you come back in and i mean mostly for like video purposes and stuff but Mm, uh you know sometimes just because <laughs> I can. Um, speaking as a, a true local to Walt Disney World, yeah, it's a lot of times it was because I can. But uh, it's you know for me, if if I was traveling from out of time town coming to Walt Disney World, it, for sure every time it has it has to be a must do at this point. And anyone who I know that hasn't experienced Country Bear Jamboree before. I go out of my way to force it upon them because it is an attraction that everyone needs to enjoy at least once because, you know, it's once you get it, uh, you're, you're going to be hooked on it for as long as it's there. Yeah, I love Country Bear Chamber, even this short version. It is a must-do attraction for me whenever I'm at the Magic Kingdom, especially because, you know, we lost hours to Winnie the Pooh. No, I think that they should never have made it two theaters. I think if they'd made it one theater, maybe it could have survived. Although they were just determined to squeeze Winnie the Pooh into Disneyland somewhere. So, um, yeah, anyway, I mean, so we would have lost another attraction if they kept Country Bears. It's and meanwhile, it's it would be great to have even more seating uh, at Hungry Bear Restaurant. And that's a ridiculous thing to say because it's already so much seating. But I feel like, you know, I haven't been to Disneyland since 2019. But even the last time I was there, I was like, every single time I go, it's like, how do you find a seat in this place? It's, whether you're on the top floor or the bottom floor in the shade, it's just that there's never enough seating. Think if, yeah. think if you could have watched the Country Bear Jamboree while eating your Hungry Bear restaurant food. Oh, my gosh. That's what dreams are made of. I know. Oh, gosh, it'd be wildly popular then. Yeah. 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 Now, Country Bear Jamboree may not be the most popular attraction, but it's one of the most beloved by its fans and definitely one of the most fun and campy. Um, The fan base for the Bears remains so strong at Disneyland that the walk-around characters are still seen on occasion at the park. Now, rumors that Imagineering kept one of the two theaters intact and in storage keeps many Disneyland fans hoping the Jamboree will return someday, perhaps near Grizzly River Rapids at Disney California Adventure. That's always one of the rumors. Um, Knowing that it was one of the final approvals Walt gave before the end of his life, we should make Country Bear Jamboree a must-see whenever we visit the Magic Kingdom to show park management that guests appreciate and enjoy this Country Bear band and its connection to Walt. So now it's time to take a look back at This Week in Disney History. Craig, it's been a while since we have done this, so I, I hope you're you're all sharp and ready to go. I'm going to do my best. Uh, okay. No promises. Okay. Well, here we are for September 5th. Okay. Walt Disney's black and white Mickey Mouse cartoon, The Chain Gang, was released on September 5th, 1930, and it featured the first appearance of which Disney character, although he is not yet named... Yee, um, that's, um, okay, 
I'm going to go with a stretch on this one. And chain, I'm thinking about dogs on their chains. So I'm going to say Pluto. You are good. Very good deductive reasoning. Yes, Pluto is one of the hounds who chases Mickey. Hmm. Oh, excellent. Pleasant. Oh, yeah. September 6th. Oh, you're off to a great start here. Thank September you. 6th. What parade had its final run at both Disneyland and Walt Disney World on September 6th, 1976? It featured oversized head costumes of historic Americans, the parade's unique soundtrack, synthesizers, and antique carousel organs had been prepared by Don Dorsey, and it was its very first project for Disney. I, I believe, if I'm correct on this one, it would be America on Parade. And I say that because uh, our, our friend of the Diz, Sam Carter, posted about an American America on Parade book that he he picked up at one point in time that looked absolutely fascinating. I might be s- screwing that up a little bit, but I think America on Parade. You're absolutely right. And I'm pretty sure I have that book you're referring to. And, Very um, cool. Very yeah. cool. And, um, yeah, and I think somewhere in our archives there's a whole episode on just this parade. Or it's part of the um, part of the Main Street Electrical Parade segment episode. I'm not sure, because that was Don Dorsey's next project, hmm. the Main Street Electrical Parade. Can I write a note to look up that book after the show? <laughs> okay, September 7th. Which master animator, artist, and Disney legend was born on September 7th, 1911? He would become the resident specialist on animating Mickey Mouse and redesign the character for his landmark role as the sorcerer's apprentice in Fantasia, a look which remains Mickey's official look to this day. Um, uh, uh, Freddie Moore. Absolutely. He was born in Los Angeles, California. His first name was actually Robert, but he used his middle name, Fred, as his first name. And despite limited formal art training, he rose to prominence at Disney very quickly in the early 1930s due to his great natural talent and the tremendous appeal of his drawings. Freddie worked on such Disney classics as Pinocchio, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Peter Pan, as well as many Mickey Mouse shorts. Okay, September 8th, two beloved Disney Park attractions closed on September 8th, 1998. The attraction at Disneyland closed with a 7 a.m. ceremony. The Magic Kingdom attraction closed despite the attraction's popularity and guest protests. So which attractions closed? Uh, 98, I think, well, Disney World would be Mr. Toad's. That's correct. I'm not. I'm blanking on Disneyland, so. It was the submarine voyage. Oh, okay. Okay, I think I remember that. I mean, yeah. of course I remember the attraction. I mean, the, the closing. Feels like we talked about it yesterday. <laughs> okay, September 9th. Which Disneyland attraction lowered its curtain for the last time after 29 years on September 9th, 2001? <laughs> Uh, country bear jamboree <laughs> that's absolutely right you know i had to get that in there yeah disneyland's I... country bear playhouse originally the country bear jamboree 
opened since March 1972, and as we mentioned, space will be used for the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> that was a tough one. I pulled that, that out was. at the last second. <laughs> Isn't that a great coincidence? <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. September 10th, a morning story meeting for Fantasia takes place at the studio's conference room on September 10th, 1938. Amongst those present were Walt Disney, composer Deems Taylor, who will act as the film's master of ceremonies, animator Dick Humor, artist writer Joe Grant, and the orchestral conductor. What is the conductor's name? You'll remember the scene where he shakes Mickey Mouse's hand. I know, and it is literally falling out of my head right now. Um, I I am so embarrassed with this. I should have it. It's just not. It's not in there. It's Leopold Stokowski. <sighs> yeah. It it is. If you would have said Leopold, I would have been able to get Stokowski. <laughs> yeah, whenever we say Leopold, I think of that classic Bugs Bunny cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, which I love. <laughs> so anyway, and did you know? I think we might have mentioned this on a show, an episode way back when. You know, when they were designing the partner statue and they're trying to figure out how does a four-fingered Mickey hold a five-fingered Walt Disney's hand? They looked back at this scene in Fantasia yeah. to see how did Leopold Stokowski shake hands with Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And uh, and they use that as the model for this for that. Brilliant. So it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's funny how I thought how would they have even thought of that, but they did. All right. September eleventh. Actress and singer E.G. Daly is born Elizabeth Gutman on September 11th, 1962. She is the singing voice of which character in Disney's 2002 Country Bears? <laughs> did we go over this? <laughs> <laughs> no, we did not, but I know how much you like the film. I, uh, I pass. I pass. Barry Barrington. Sure. Sure, she did. But she also voiced Tommy Pickles on TV's animated Rugrats. Her Disney voice credits include Wreck-It Ralph, The Incredibles video game, Lilo and Stitch the series, Recess, Taking the Fifth Grade, Lloyd in Space, the animated Aladdin series, a Goofy movie, and the Hercules television series. I mean, of course I know her as Tommy Pickles. I, I don't know. I did not know her name, though, as the uh, the voice of it, but, you know. I grew up watching all the forms of Rugrats. Oh, good. I I, I, I was just too old for Rugrats. I didn't a, a little bit. A little bit too old. <laughs> <laughs> I think my children watched it. But they're the same age as you. Yeah. So yeah. I'm pretty sure it's, they watched it. It was one of those shows where I was, even once they became like teenagers later on, like I... I flat out knew that i was too old to be watching it but you know sometimes it just it, it sticks with you a little bit longer yeah, yeah. <laughs> well there you go there's a connection rugrats and country bears wonderful i will <laughs> break that out at dinner parties from now on there you go there you go and that the, <laughs> the woman who voiced star trek also yeah yeah so country bear so so many uh dinner party references to make so many yeah, good ones yeah. Well, you did very well on our return. Oh, thank the very you. Very first this week in Disney history. 
All right. Well, Craig, you know, we always talk about, you know, Disney Plus, what we've seen and all that. So during our hiatus, there were quite a few things that are on Disney Plus or have been in the movie theaters. And I've not seen everything, but I thought we maybe share our thoughts about some of the big things that have been out there. Um, there's uh, um, Cruella. I have boycotted this film because I, I may have mentioned in an episode, I don't know, that I just thought they've gone to the well um, too many times with 101 Dalmatians, which I just watched, I rewatched last week because I'm watching the animated series in order. I'm really disappointed that Disney Plus got rid of the, um, you know, how they had everything in chronological order. All the, you know, the animated yeah. shows, the live action shows, shorts, they don't have that feature anymore. Hmm. So, but they do for the animated. I wonder if it's animated. just buried somewhere, because that's one of the things I've noticed. As Disney Plus has added more more and more to its uh, content library, I've noticed that some of the things, uh, it, you know, display-wise that I liked about it when it first launched uh, haven't been as as um presented as well as it originally was and yeah. every every now and then i'll like stumble upon it and be like okay that's that's the the collection how i wanted to see it uh, displayed in the right order but you know what at the same time too they also have that right to to change it up anytime they they feel yeah, like they want to it, so yeah and they're doing that if you find that collection or if anybody out there does please let me know how you found it but Cruella, I have not watched it. Maybe I'll watch it when it's free on Disney+. Plus. It's gotten good reviews. People have liked it. Have you seen it? I, I haven't. And I will say, though, I feel the opposite of you. And I'm, I am not boycotting it at all. I just haven't had time um it, it seems like well I, I guess living in florida the one nice part is i'll either watch it on disney plus when it's free or i know that at the amc theaters at disney springs which is my home theater uh, they will play disney movies way beyond their theatrical run to like to the point that raya just left theaters like a week ago and it's been on Blu-ray now for I think a month and a half. Oh my gosh. Um it's and it's been free on Disney Plus for just as long. And uh it was still playing in theaters after it was out and available. So I know the same is going to be for Cruella, that it's gonna it's gonna have a little bit more time even after it's available on Disney Plus. Uh so knowing that I've you know, I've placed other things that I've wanted to watch in front of it, but uh, it's not because I'm not excited about it. I love Emma Stone. I love so many of the the uh, actresses in the movie. It's just I've I've put other things before it, but I can't wait to watch it. Uh, mm -hmm. Just because I, it's one of those ones where I know it is so different from the other origin stories that they've tried to make that i think it's it's going to be different enough that i can appreciate it where i don't like where it's like it's trying to be too close to the original clearly just changing the time period for this one uh they're saying you know throw throw everything you know about 101 dalmatians out the window because it's not even in the same universe but a similar story so i can appreciate it a little bit more because of that yeah well we'll see <laughs> i don't know <laughs> if i can't I, sell I, you I on hate, that i don't know what to do 
<laughs> I just hate that they retell the backstories of all these wonderful villains, and usually it's because they're misunderstood and not they're really the heroines rather than the villains. And I'm tired of that. I'm but just- that's not what I expect. And I'm sure people will be like, watch the movie and then figure it out on your own. But I feel like this one, A, is not not a retelling and trying to make it. I think they're trying to say, yeah, we know Cruella is a villain and we're going to tell you how she got to be this evil. And I like that aspect. I don't like the aspect of, Oh, Maleficent was just misunderstood in all Mm -hmm. of this. And that's how she ended up this way. I'm agreeing with you on that. I don't, I don't like that. But if there's, if they're embracing it and saying, yeah, Cruella is, is basically a devilish person. And we're going to tell you what drove her to that insanity and that put her there. And, it's awesome then i'm okay with that let's let's really dive into to what set her over the edge (laughs) yeah we'll see we'll see i mean i'm sure i'll watch it at some point yeah by by the time this is out i'll have watched it i'm sure (laughs) now um now one i think we'll disagree on a little because i've heard you talk about it on another disunplugged um you know show and that is pixar's luca Mm-hmm. So, Craig, what did you think of this? I, I just thought, uh, while it's a great movie, and the last half of it is brilliant at times, um, and I love the animation style and all of it. I think that there is, you know, what it, it takes a lot of its, um, it takes a lot of its inspiration because it's from the same artist who created La Luna. Uh, I, I love that it takes that animation style, but it also to me that style pays tribute to a lot of uh miyazaki and Mm -hmm. i i love studio ghibli so i like that it's kind of blending those styles together pixar and and ghibli in a way uh and i i think the last half is so 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 good but to me the first half just happens so fast that uh it kind of throws away a lot of exposition and character development and so I wasn't I wasn't a fan of it. The it took me two times to watch it because the first time I sat down to watch it, the first half just did not captivate me at all and I knew I was going to finish it though. And then once I watched the back half, I was like, "Oh, okay. This is this is definitely one you and not everyone is going to feel like you have to trudge through that front part, but if you are feeling off about it in the front half, the back half of it pays off in in folds mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. the first half of it i love this film I, I i i see your points and but overall i just thought this was visually like you said it is gorgeous yes and if you watch the um the extras the director talks about how he based it on where he's from in italy and they talk about their visits and you you see their inspiration and it's just so it's exquisitely animated drawn and animated i love the characters i love the story i was smiling i laughed out loud i everything about this i just thought was so charming and i i thoroughly enjoyed this i haven't been buying physical media lately uh mainly because i've been homebound and some of the um and just some of the um 
I just forget that they're releasing them. Yeah. But well, Amazon doesn't get Disney is, releases for a while usually, uh, so that also. But, yeah, yeah, and but this is one I want, and uh, I just thoroughly enjoyed this film. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's... I, I've never ranked the Pixar films in my favorites. I know a lot of people are saying, uh, this is like at the bottom. But for me, it's 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 one of my favorites. Really liked it. Yeah, so, I, even for me, it's not, it's not at the bottom. But it also, it's now, it's now getting to the point with Pixar. You know, we, we all know the bottom movies. There's anyone who doesn't put, you know, Cars 2 in the the bottom of the barrel even i i know it's popular unpopular but brave i feel like is in the bottom monsters university i love finding dory but let's be honest about the quality of it it's it's in the bottom barrel as well too as an overall movie is a is a entertaining piece that continues that finding nemo story great but uh, that's because it already takes all these characters you know and love and and puts them in that movie but there's there's some that are there are some pixar movies that are clearly at the the lower side of it and then you have that middle section that you know it's at that point it's just it comes down to personal taste and uh it's just pixar has grown so much it was a lot easier to rank pixar movies when there was only 10 of them (laughs) versus what 22 now something like that (laughs) yeah and then my return to the theater was to see Black Widow. And I love the Marvel films. I'm watching them in chronological order right now. I think Black Panther is my next one. Uh, I'm watching them in, you know, I, there's some site I go to that says mm-hmm. how to watch the films mm-hmm. in order. So Black Panther is my next one to watch. And so I was really excited to see Black Widow. I love the character. I was sorry about her fate in one of the films. I mean, I'm, everyone's probably seen it, but I don't want to give it away. Um, the last third of this film, well, let's say the last act, really hard for me to swallow with things crashing down and these fights and everything going on. I thought, okay, I know it's a Marvel film and it's a superhero film, but even this is a little much for me. And, um, and then, you know, and I have no problem with strong female characters. I loved Wonder Woman, the first one. Um, Ms. Marvel, I didn't like so much, but overall I enjoyed it. But I don't like it when they have strong female characters at the expense of the male characters. And all of the male characters in this are either doofuses, caricatures, or sort of milk toast, like the guy that got her all the things she needed and i thought okay you know when there's strong male characters it's usually not at the expense where they they ridicule or downplay the female characters and i'm feeling that the trend of films now is to not just have the strong female characters but you have to ridicule the male characters and and i feel black widow did that overall i enjoyed it but it was not my favorite of the Marvel films, and, and I hope they make more Black Widow films if that's possible. I, I mean, I'm I'm kind of good on Black Widow now. Unfortunately, I I did not feel as strongly about the movie, and it has nothing to do with her character. Um, Black Widow was one of my favorites in the Avengers. Uh, I like. I know this is sacrilege for a lot of people, but I prefer Black Widow over Tony Stark. 
and Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, can, I see why. I can I, see why. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a huge Iron Man fan. I. I am like my top three are Black Widow, Thor, and Captain America in the mm-hmm. Avengers, and you know that's even once you start adding all the other characters. I think those are still my three. Uh, I, this one, it just, it just felt, it, it all felt like it was trying to make up for the fact that they, in uh, part of my language on this, but they screwed Scarlett Johansson out of a proper movie for years and years and years and years. And this was their way of making up with it. And because of that, they had to work with the limitations of it because yeah, she's 10 years older now. So you it's while everyone calls it a prequel, I don't think this is spoilers. It is a prequel in terms of it is a prequel to uh, what you will end up seeing in infinity war slash uh, (laughs) slash end game. But this is not, we're not seeing her, Besides some flashbacks, this isn't like all taking place pre pre the first Avengers movie and pre Iron Man 2 when she makes her appearance. This is all this is all in the midst of of Marvel events. So I felt like I I felt like it just it, it didn't it didn't grip on. And also like what she went through in that time period, she didn't mention that to anyone else as you're approaching yeah. Endgame and stuff. Seem odd. It's yeah. Not, it wasn't a walk in a park. It's not like she walked out of this one without any issues at all. Her life basically turned completely upside down over the course of a very short time. And uh you know, in to the point that characters that you meet in this also are going to have a role in the Marvel universe moving forward. So you think there'd be some statements about it, but I, you know, this is, that's when we realize like, okay, maybe I care too much about some of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree with you. I, and that's why I'm hoping they'll bring her back in another film. That's a little more worthy of her. And I agree with you. I love Captain America and Thor because I read those comic books when I was a boy voraciously and black widow and scarlet witch are my other favorites out of all that and i agree with you about iron man i'm i don't know maybe it's just because of the way he's portrayed but yeah he's not one of my favorites yeah but um yeah yeah. so uh anyway yeah so i enjoyed it but it's it's not one of my favorites just because i don't think it does justice to the character and and i don't I just don't like the way they treat the few male characters that are in there. I think you can have a strong female character and, and, you know, and still have worthy male characters in supporting roles without belittling them. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see your point on that, but at the same time too, like I also appreciate that like with David Harbor, uh, who plays, um, red, I can't think of the last part of it, but her her father in it, um, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, from we all know him from Stranger Things and Hellboy. Uh, he plays Doofus really well. Um, he is well, he did it. He is so well entertaining. <laughs> uh, so you know, and while I I see I I do understand what you're saying with it. Also, like uh, he's he is fantastic as that just kind of. Uh, buffoonish roll into it so i i appreciate him fully in it yeah okay now one i have not seen that i know you have and i have not seen it only because uh, at this time of recording i'm recovering from a pretty significant surgery and i cannot 
drive and I'm not paying $30 for premier access on Disney Plus is the Jungle Cruise. And this is one that after you and I were at the D23 Expo sitting next to each other when they did, you know, with the rock and everybody coming out on the Jungle Cruise boat. And that got me really excited for this film. And you said you've seen it. So what are your thoughts, Craig? It's very entertaining. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it is an adventure film in an era where adventure films are all but dead. You know, I think I think a lot of uh, you know the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels, kind of, and you know other other sequels of other adventure movies that haven't performed as well, kind of. Uh, you know, sealed sealed the fate of it. There's always a, an outlier like Jumanji, also starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson, that sometimes sneaks through and and keeps that genre alive. But uh, the the action adventure film, as we know, is for the most part is kind of done in this time period, and comic book films and such have replaced it. That being said. Jungle Cruise is entertaining. There's a lot of problematic uh, issues with it that I'm not going to get into with this because, you know, I could do a full podcast on it. And I've no I've, I've talked about it at this point in other places. So it start to to bring it all together. But uh, it's, you know, for Disney Parks fans, it's it's everything we could have wanted from a Jungle Cruise movie. But there were some bad decisions made, primarily in in how it took too many uh, it took too many uh, plot points from Pirates of the Caribbean and transferred it into the Jungle Cruise. And if you remember the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie, there is no reason why they should be similar in any way, shape, or form. Yet they mm-hmm. are; they're too similar. Um, but ultimately, it's about the chemistry between uh, Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt and the other characters, and totally, totally works. That the the rapport we saw from them at D twenty three Expo that has translated into some of like the the stuff they've done for Disney Parks blog. It, 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 in my book, that is a hundred thousand percent the real versions of both of them they they are genuinely uh connected to each other and excited to work together and truly are like a brother sister combo almost in a way with the way they joke around it does across really well on the screen it does yeah And, and and i've heard that the actor who plays um her brother is really good too he is so good yeah the the acting the acting as far as i'm concerned is all is all just uh, top notch. Even like Paul Giamatti has a very, very small role into it. But uh, you know the the scenes he's in, he he sells every bit of it. His goofy as he is in it, and it's the same for for Jesse Plemons. I think they almost went a little too far with his portrayal of like a World War One era style German. Um, it's like it's downright stereotypical in every way of of that early World War One uh, German style character but even he is just you know he he has his hilarious moments with it so it's it's a movie that i feel like disney fans will latch on to uh maybe not in the widespread way that pirates of the caribbean did uh, and i would not also be surprised if we don't see any sequels from it and it just kind of goes away forever after this but for what it is you know it's 
it is better than the rest of the Disney ride adaptations. It's better than Country Bears, Mission to Mars. Ask you that. <laughs> all, Tower of Terror. The Tower of Terror. Yeah, it's it's it, it. I would even I would put it up against all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, except okay. for Curse of the Black Pearl and Dead Man's Chest. Those two are still above okay. it, but and it's better than Haunted Mansion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as much as I love Eddie Murphy and Jennifer Tilly as Madame Leota, uh, yeah, it's it's a little better than Haunted Mansion. Okay. All right, good. Well, I know I will see it because it's yeah. one I was looking forward to seeing. Now, there's a couple of Disney Plus series. Um, one I forgot to ask you about before we recorded, but um, one we talked briefly about, and I think I'm sure we were both really excited about this. And that's behind the attraction. And I think we both feel the same way about it. And that is really lukewarm. Um, I, yeah. I Well, first of all, if you listen to this show... <laughs> if you already you know everything. If you've listened to this show since day one and, and our Disneyland, you know, the episodes I did for our, our legacy Disneyland show, you know everything in here. Yep. I think there's a there's a couple of things that I think were questionable that they bring up and Craig and I talked about that in our pre pre show meeting. And um but I want to say what they are because I would have to do a little research on it. But um I just it's not capturing me at all. And I think some of it and Craig, you can get more into the structure of it because that's your area of expertise me the the narrator's driving me absolutely bonkers yeah she is annoying and she's taking me out of it and um that's my big issue and craig you now you can get more into some of the like editing and stuff like that yeah it's the it's this quick style editing that i feel like is done as a response to uh you know, people with short attention spans, it's make everything as snappy and as fast as possible and reuse a lot of bits and try to create humor out of something that's not necessarily humor. Uh, you, humor, I keep wanting to say humorful, but, uh, you know, it's it's trying to make it's trying to make light of something that isn't isn't a fun or funny subject. And mm -hmm. that kind of stuff bothers me uh, it, it, at the end of the day. Who is this series aimed at? Is it aimed at? Is it aimed at people who solely know nothing about Disney parks and want to get some insight on them? Uh, okay, I think they'll enjoy this. But if you know even a little bit about this stuff, you know the majority of the stories. And furthermore, and I, I will always stick on this point about this series more than anything else. I hate how demeaning it is to going behind the attractions and saying, okay, but we're only going to give you 20 minutes behind the attractions. And then we're going to spend 20 minutes talking about the attractions that developed because of the original yes. attraction. It's, yes. Give me all the time on the behind the scenes, not where it's going. That's a different series in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, well, the star tours, you know that one. They if they want to talk about Galaxy's Edge and the attractions, and there do separate episodes on those because they are worthy of separate episodes. I'll, and I'll even say with Tower of Terror, give me one episode on Tower of Terror, 
give me another episode on Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout mm-hmm. where you go into the fact, well, hey, yep. You might not have known if you're new to the parks, you might not have known that this was originally Tower of Terror, which you could have discovered in this episode. But I don't for Tower of Terror. Give me it just on the the Tower of Terror style attractions. And I understand that my opinion on this as someone who is a co-host on a Disney podcast is definitely, uh, you know, not going to be the popular (laughs) opinion in terms of all of this. But it just, I think Disney history fans deserve better. I agree. And I was hoping it would be more in the vein of the Imagineering story that Leslie Iwerks did. Mm-hmm. And it is not. So I, I, I'm really disappointed in this. Now, I'm still going to watch all the episodes because, uh, you know, there's more coming. But, um, yeah, I'm, yeah I, I'm disappointed with this one. Now, one, I am shocked that I enjoy is have you seen monsters at work? I've watched four episodes so far. Uh huh. So I'm, I'm not all really the way up to date. Enjoying it. I am really enjoying it. And I, you know, I did not care for monsters university whatsoever. Yeah. And so I was a little worried it was somehow going to be in that vein, but it actually takes place after monsters Inc. And, um, I I like it. I I don't know why. I can't tell you. I find it entertaining and lighthearted, and there's some cleverness to it. There are morals to the story that parents can talk about with their children. You know, there's lessons learned in each episode. Mm -hmm. So that's always nice when it's not over the head and you can just strike up a conversation. I I am thoroughly enjoying it. I I hope they keep this going. This series. I I don't mind it. Animation is good. That's where I have a problem. I don't, it doesn't have that fluidity of uh, Pixar. And for Monsters Inc., I will, one of the most impressive aspects of Monsters Inc. and Monster University is how fluid uh, Sully's hair is in particular. Mm -hmm. You know, Mike is a very flat character, but Sully and his hair, like that was a sticking point of doing Monsters Inc. in the first places. Okay, we can we can make this hair so realistic. And then I feel like Monsters University was the next step of it to make it even better. With this being the Disney television animation, not a not a bad look at all. It's it's relatively okay, but it misses some of those uh, details and textures that a fully right. produced Pixar uh, production can do. And with Sully in particular, the fact is, if it if they didn't have a presence in the show, I would probably be a little bit more for forgiving on it. But you know what? They actually got John Goodman and Billy Crystal to be a pretty decent part of the show which i commend them for i mean that's it's not impossible to get them to do it considering they have such a great relationship with disney uh but i was shocked how important they are to the show so yes, i would have absolutely. liked the animation to stand up a little bit more but you know i'm also i'm i know i'm being hard about it yeah i'm, I'm giving them a, a break because it's television yeah. so i know it won't be the film quality and all that but um, it was nice that they brought back John Goodman and, and um, you know, the original voices yeah. and all that. So I was really yeah. happy about that. <clears throat> so great. So that's what we've been watching. Those are our thoughts. Hey, let us know. Go on to um, 
Twitter at Connecting Wall. Let us know what you think of all these. Do you agree with us? Do you not agree with us? So, do you have other? Do you, are there other things you think we should watch? Do, are Are you a big Country Bears fan? You're not. Do you think we should give no. it another watch? Well, I no. have yet to watch it. Absolutely but. not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try to convert Craig. No. To your side. <laughs> no. No, thank you. <laughs> Well, we hope you enjoyed this Welcome Back episode, and we hope that you'll be coming back again, that you'll drop in and see us now and then, like every week. We've done our very best to please with just the bare necessities. We hope that you'll be coming back again. So, anyway, I used um, several references during my preparation for this episode. Um, Some books that I looked at, A Historical Tour of Walt Disney World by Andrew Kisty, and I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce your last name, Andrew, so I hope I got it right. Secret Stories of Extinct Disneyland by Jim Corcus, and The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway. Some websites and articles online that I checked out. DisneyParkScripts.com for the Country Bear Jamboree at the Magic Kingdom. Um, the Disney Wiki, the Country Bear Jamboree, the Disney Wiki, Melvin, Buff, and Max, the Disney Wiki, the Country Bears, the Secret History of Disney Rides, Country Bear Jamboree by the Undercover Tourist, and Walt D- or WDW Chronicles, the Story Behind Country Bears by Jim Corcus for All Ears, and Country Bear Jamboree Parts 1 and 2 by Jack Spence for All Ears. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on all the various shows on the Diz Unplugged podcast network that I'm on and on uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Teleclaster. And I know at the beginning of this episode, I gave you out the Craig at Disney info email, uh, but... Normally, I can be contacted at Craig at WDWinfo.com. Craig at Disney Info is if it's for larger files because I have a much larger limit on that, but I don't check that email as much. So uh, for for if you're not adding lots of pictures, audio, whatever in there, Craig at WDWinfo.com and, and I will get to see it. But what about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers in Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplugged.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing. That was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 